Today we are talking to Derek, the CTO at Altrix, and we discuss the future of making machine learning more accessible, optimizing engineering teams to be successful, and a unique take on the skills necessary to navigate your way to the top of an organization. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. All right, how you doing, man? Good, good. I like the beard. Thanks, it's new. Yeah. Right? Looking like a Colorado guy like me. Right? And then my wife and I were just looking at vacation places, and I was like, I saw your location. I was like, oh, we should go back out to Colorado. Do you get out here much? Yeah, yeah. I went out there, I think, like three times last year, bounced around between uh, Fort Collins, uh, Boulder, and then Denver, and then the mountains over here. Was it all for fun? Was it for work? Was it a combination? Everything. Nice. Yeah, we've got customers out there. We've got, uh, she's looking at vet schools out there in Fort Collins. Because yeah. she's, uh, that's, she's becoming a doctor, a veterinarian medicine. Yep. Yeah, my daughter's into that. So she's talked about Colorado State. It's a really good school for it. Yeah, man, I'm excited though because we had a really good conversation like what three or four months ago when I think Mike oh, no, it's been a uh, introduced us. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to chat with you. I know we talked about a variety of topics when we talked whatever that was a couple months ago. So, uh, yeah, whatever you want to take it. Excited just to chat with you. And Mike said you were the man. Like he he texted me one day. He said you got to talk to this guy. He's the best guy. Well, we'll see about that. But uh, Mike's been a great partner. And Otelium is somebody we're trying to develop a deep partnership with. So they've been great. They've been a great partner for us. So it's cool that we can kind of share networks and connect with one another. So what do you guys do? What does Alteryx do? Uh, you know, at the heart of it, we're all about uh, giving people access to the information their data holds. So you know, the one data stat that we throw out there from PwC is they say 10 to $15 trillion of values locked up in data. So our software is essentially giving everyone access to that information and the insights it holds. So we kind of brand ourselves as being an end-to-end self-service data science and analytics platform. Um, really targeted two personas for us. Part of it's the data science persona. And those are the folks that are the R and Python developers. How do we give them quicker time to, to insights? Uh, through a, a code-friendly mechanism. And then there's the, you know, the 47 million analysts that are spending their time in Excel and VLOOKUPs and, and those tools. How do we help them get access to insights more quickly um, in a way that's more code-free for them? Obviously, they're typically not programmers. So our goal is to give them a really obvious way to access those insights. That's what we do. Our software does that. You guys are growing really fast. I looked you up on LinkedIn. Said yeah, I said 2018, 700 people today, 1400 people. Yeah, double insane. by the time that I, since I've joined. I mean, I joined, what, August of 18? Um, doubled headcount. The one, the one proxy I've used just for that momentum is when I joined, I think our stock was around $30 a share. You know, um, if you look at a week ago, we were at 155 or some ridiculous number. So I just think it shows you not just all our momentum in the marketplace, but just this general space. There's just a ton of momentum in the analytics space. And unfortunately for us, we're way out in front of that momentum. So we feel really good about where we're at. I like your tagline. Yeah. Like, yeah, for the company, I, I got the, uh, in your profile or in the show notes, Jake put a link to like the Gartner quadrant. Thing that you won and yep. the headline was uh you know alter x recognized as a leader with the highest ability to execute and then i saw your logo and then it said your tagline the thrill of solving and i was like that sounds pretty badass it is i mean that is something we are really passionate about especially for this the citizen data science persona i think for us it's uh giving those people the ability to solve their own problems so if i'm an analyst sitting in a line of business and i am trying to pull an insight out of a piece of data i don't want to have to submit a ticket to it have them pull the data you know generate what they think is the right insight and give it back to me it's really about giving the analysts the tools to go do that themselves and so if you look at our at our case studies 
it all revolves around empowering the individual. So that thrill of solving is something we're super passionate about. And I think our customers are, if you go to our Inspire conferences, uh, now Analyticon for 2020, uh, you'll see people tears and eyes about how life-changing our software has been for them. Things that used to take them weeks or months now takes them hours or minutes and they get all that time back to go do much more interesting work or have a life. And I think that makes it really cool that you're actually touching people's quality of life with the software that we have. Yeah, that's what got me interested in engineering, you know, in, in the business side of my career. So after just being a kid, hacking stuff together, having fun, it was really, I gained traction when I was solving problems for people and I was excited to, to do that. But I'm curious, okay, so you join, the company's doubled in size in the past two years. What have you been learning from that growth? Like how have you, what insights do you have from that? Well, I think Alteryx is a really interesting, and if you've done your research, I'm sure you have, you know, companies started in the 90s. Um, our existing designer software came out 2006, 2007. It's still the existing product we have today. Our server product came out in 2016, 17. So you're talking about two products that are, you know, long in the tooth to some extent. Uh, tons of value in those tools. Customers get tons of value. But now with this 10 to $15 trillion market opportunity, you can imagine the players that are starting to come into our space. And so you, you have this really escalated innovators dilemma situation where things have been going really well with our existing software space, but now you're getting inundated with competitors. And so how do you take this, this high growth company that's been kind of operating at a, at a high level and now inject some, some startup mentality into it where, you know, you're innovating quickly, you're doing things that are more disruptive, doing things that are more transformational. And I think trying to combine servicing the existing customer base with innovating, the, the, the core innovators dilemma is something that I kind of walked into uh, where I think the, the former leadership was really great about de developing the product and making it better and better. We had not paid as much attention to as to that disruptive innovation piece of it, modernizing our platforms, being more cloud first, and then all the people process components that come with that. We hadn't paid as much attention probably to those things as we needed to. So that was really the discovery for me walking in is you got to be sensitive to the culture that's been here for a very long time, but you also got to inject some energy, some startup energy into the culture too. That was one of the things I really noticed about you guys when I was checking out your, you know, your, your LinkedIn profiles and your pages, your brand feels very startup-y. Mm -hmm. um, it's like you've got some really modern uh, designers and brand feel, which is great that you don't lose that flexibility as you get bigger. I loved that that, that stayed like ingrained. Yeah, it's still very much who we are. We, we think our core products are will stay uh, very applicable for uh, the long term. It's about when reimagining the technical platforms they sit upon to make it more accessible. Data is getting more distributed. It's getting bigger. So how do we play in that marketplace? Uh, I think it's something that we're very thoughtful around. It didn't exist as much as it did. It does, you know, 10 years ago, very different situation than it is today with all the hyperscale providers and all the systems of records like the sales forces of the world. How as a data aggregator, um, assimilator, prep and blend tool like we, our DNA is, how do you survive or exist in that kind of a distributed data environment? Uh, I, we think the core experience will continue to be unbelievable and our customers will still get, continue to get tons of value out of that, but they're going to be inundated with even more data than they were before. So we just have to maintain that relevancy in terms of just giving people access to their information. Yeah. So here's a good question for you. So I, my, uh, my parents own a weight loss clinic that does pretty well. It's like keeps doubling in size every year. I haven't been up there in like three years, but I went up there this past week uh, to get like some blood tests and like some vitamins through IV because I'd never done that before wow. just, just to see what their, you know, why is their business growing so big? It's, it was huge. Like it started out as like a small office space and now it's like a giant commercial complex with like just a large number of doctors and people. It blew my mind. But as I was sitting there getting the, the IV, which is a pretty cool experience, uh, I was talking to my sister who, who actually works there and she was doing some marketing and she was asking me, you know, how we approach marketing at our leadership company and things like that and just getting some insights. And I said, oh, you, you know, you definitely want to run. She was asking me, like, how, how does she pick a, a product to market within the organization? Because there's so many. And I was like, we well, should probably just go run, look in look in the sales system and see 
you know, which products have the most margin and what type of customers and start to get an idea for like your ideal customer profile and then, you know, have an offer to present to that profile and sort of figure out like what works and how you can amplify it and look through your data. And she just like looked at me like with a blank page, like <laughs> how, how would you do that? So I instantly thought I was like, at what point will the like sales systems, I guess that's what they use, like the doctor's office tools type deal. Like at what point will they start extracting insights from their data? Like, because if they could, if they could like serve that up to the people that run these small and medium, you know, $20 million businesses um, that there's a lot of in America. And like, if they could run these data uh, insights on them, they could give them really useful information, but it's not, we're not there yet. Like how long do you think it'll take the market to get there? I think it's getting closer. I think, you know, we are very focused on not just auto modeling, you know, how do I take a set of data and generate insights off of it, but how do I take somebody like your sister through that journey so they can understand how to generate their own insights? Again, we're very focused on that, that citizen data science persona, taking somebody who maybe doesn't know much about how to take data and process it and, and really put the power of the tool in their hands to generate their own insights. So I think at a fundamental level, our tool does a lot of that. I think what you're seeing companies, not just like Alteryx, but others do is provide a vertical slant on top of those, those scenarios. So if it's, you know, financial services and you're doing churn analysis or, you know, trying to figure out where to put uh, your stores as you geographically expand, we're trying to make that experience much more accessible for a core set of use cases. Uh, we kind of dipped our toe into the, into the healthcare space, into the financial services space to provide some of that that experience to those those consumers, but I, it doesn't stop there. Obviously, there's a there's a ton of applicable use cases. Will it always solve every use case someone like your sister has? Probably not, but it'll solve a good portion of them. And if we can get them comfortable with the tooling around that, then they can go generate their own insights. And I think that is really the magic: is giving them a guided experience that allows them to learn, and then they can take those learnings and apply them to solving their own business problems in unique ways, and maybe creating some business value, some differentiation off how they do that. I think that's, there's tons of power in that. Yeah. And I think also based off of me, you know, just learning more in this conversation, it, it almost seems like it would be, you would make tools at the vendor of the software that they use would then consume. And then it would be up to them to, to do that. Right. Like that's, that's probably the more, the more direct path, like how you would get your technology helping my sister type. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. obviously interested in OEM stuff. Our, our CEO, Dean Stoker, is very interested in basically creating a, you know, a venture enablement capability that allows companies to take our software and use it as, as how they build their, their companies. Uh, so you could take, you know, maybe this space is, has enough critical mass into it that a company would say, I'm going to use Alteryx to, to drive speed to market on solutioning. And I'm going to provide my IP on top of that and white label that solution. But I know Alteryx gives me speed to market. I don't have to go build all the technical plumbing around standing up a solution. I can use Alteryx for that. And I can really connect with the user and solving the business problem and not focus as much on the, the technical underpinnings that a lot of companies get stuck in as they're trying to uh, get their companies off the ground. That's interesting. So tell me how crazy I am right now. So I could take like all their, their data and I could actually somehow use your tools and then build something on top of it that like looks at product by margin and then like develops uh, automatic insights on customer profiles and things like that. That's core to our product. So yeah, we get you our product. I bet you a guy like you could probably do that in less than a day, right? You could get something extremely interesting and valuable to your sister in less than a day easily. Um, there's tons of those use cases out there. It's, it's a remarkable how quick the time to value is with our software. And I could expand even farther by looking at like all the different OEM type data sets and then end up selling, making it into a product. Totally. Right? And then sell it like anyone that has those softwares could instantly just click an integration button and it would tell them their most, and it would look at like their ideal customer pro, it would develop their I, uh, ideal customer profile based off of age. Cause see the thing about healthcare is you have all that data. Yep. Like in healthcare, you know, your the sex, age, everything of the customer. And that is something you don't have in B2B, yep. <laughs> right? So, cause they are the, the, the customer. Yeah, absolutely. And then what you see a lot of our customers do is take that data and enrich it, right? So I'll take Experian data and I'll get more of an enriched view of the customer and I can be even more precise in my segmentation or my clustering. Um, and I can be much more targeted in how I 
you know, market or position my products to a specific segment of, of my consumer base. So uh, all that stuff is core use case in our software. Uh, it's amazing how, how specific your example is to what people do every day with our software. So I want, I want to talk with you a little bit about your OQ. The ah. first time I had, I had heard that, um, I love this article. It's on your, it's on your LinkedIn profile, but it's talking about like, can you explain the IQ, EQ, OQ concept that you've written about? Yeah, this is a thing that came to me over the course of my career is a bit of a, you know, a, a personal discovery. And I think as the article uh, describes, I think early on, I, I definitely followed the process of, of thinking IQ meant everything. You know, if I was smarter than everybody else, I would be more successful than everyone else. And through the school of hard knocks, I think a lot of us learn that there's there's different types of intelligence that you have to have an appreciation for and that you have to develop. And I think in that article, what I attempted to do is to make folks aware of, you know, IQ doesn't solve it all and neither does EQ. And at certain times in your career, as you're aspiring to take on larger and larger responsibilities, between IQ, which is obviously intelligence quotient, EQ, the emotional side of it, and then what I call, you know, organizational quotient, uh, which is understanding how to navigate an organization to achieve outcomes. All three of those are required in different levels and different stages of your career and in different situations. But I think a lot of folks uh, will ignore the OQ side of it. I think EQ has gotten much more press these days over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. So I think there's much more of an appreciation for the need to have uh, emotional intelligence uh, than there ever has been before. But I think the more senior you get in an organization, the more you appreciate the nuance of organizational structure um, and agency issues, et cetera, and how you navigate those uh, really can make or break your success, especially at the most senior levels. And so I think at least having sensitivity to it um, is super, super important. No, and I, and I love the the nuances and I really suggest people go read it and it's well written, by the way, Thank you. about how it, how it walks you through each step. But it was so, when I, whenever I find something that's so truthy, I want to like amplify it, right? Because the way you called out, like if it was only about, because there, there are people that was like, it, their only skill is the organizational intelligence and you don't get far with that. Like if you just know how to play a social game, you, you don't, you're not actually bringing any real value to the organization and therefore you'll just maybe move around quickly and then rise up and then fizzle out. But if you have those like core abilities uh, and, and you can, you have a craft that you've mastered. And then on top of that craft, you've also mastered your emotional intelligence and being able to understand the, the team and those dynamics. And then once you've gotten that, it's like dynamics of teams and, and that's the organ, the higher level organization one. And if you can, and if you sort of like, it's like a, looking at the sun when there's an eclipse, like you don't like look directly at it. It's like you're aware of it. It's kind of there. It's a, it's a light string that you kind of tug on, but, but just having those awarenesses and skills is really like this, this mix. And I haven't been able to articulate it. And then I read that article and I'm like, dang, like that is it. That is what I feel and I experience and I see, but, but Derek just went and, and wrote it out in an articulate, beautiful way. I'm glad it resonated. I think we've all known people that were the extremes of each one of those three, right? Yeah. And we've, I don't think I could point to a single person that has had longevity of success when they really focus on one of those three. They may have moments of success, uh, but in terms of the ability to maintain momentum and maintain success, you can't just do one of them. And I would challenge you at the highest level of achievement, you can't just do two. Like you really got to be strong at all three of those things and know how to apply the different intelligences at different moments. Um, if you're purely empathetic and you're all about EQ, sometimes your effectivity can be damaged. If you're all about IQ, then you can leave bodies behind in terms of how you execute. That was more of how I was wired, right? And then I think I started discovering the nuance of, of you know, relationships, especially at the senior level and organizational structures and influence and all of those things. And, and not in a manipulative, you know, house of cards way, but in a way that I think was much more authentic to, okay, I know what, what's important to that person. Let me enable their success um, versus always being about my own agenda. And I think if you take that servant leadership mindset to it, it doesn't feel like it's manipulative. It feels like it's serving. Um, and that has definitely been my mental shift is, trying to take that OQ side of it and make it more of a servant leadership style than a manipulative playing the organizational political game style. And I think you got to be careful that you don't fall into that trap. Yeah, no, I, I like your leadership style things I've been working on, you know, how sometimes 
like you're always growing and learning. You seem to be that type of person. And then sometimes like these catchphrases will, will stick with you of somebody's content and, and you don't really know why exactly, but uh, I've been working on uh, like kind of getting out of my own way type. That, that's one, that's a stage I'm on. I've, I've found, uh, and, and I think a lot of it too is physiology. So I've been, you know, I'm, I'm 32 now and I've been trying to, to reconcile the changes in my mental thinking, like how, how my brain operates. And, and one of the things that I've, I learned or a concept I like is that your prefrontal cortex starts uh, finalizing its maturity in your early thirties. And I'm like, that would, that would help explain the the clarity and the different uh, ways of, of my uh, new thinking. And so I like, I get, I like being weird, right? I like looking at, you know, what's on the cutting edge of science and what's the future like, and what are the leading theories? Because when you get to the top, it's just the experts arguing. So like, we think we have like biology figured out. It's like, absolutely not. We don't even know what consciousness is or that like why we die. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I like, I like those deep thoughts and I like taking my mind over there. And then inevitably I come out with some sort of abstractions that help me think about this other type of work I'm doing. For sure. For sure. And I think my background with, you know, being a consultant for a long time, I'm not a, you know, uh, your quintessential typical uh, CTO. I have a pretty broad background. I got an MBA. I ran corporate strategy. I was a CTO. I was a CIO. I've done a lot of different things. I think the one thing that I've grown more and more to appreciate is self-awareness. Um, and I think that article that I wrote kind of speaks to, you can read the article and have an appreciation for those things, but if you're not self-aware, of how you're behaving in the moment, then it doesn't matter what you read. Like you cannot change behavior unless you generate some self-awareness. So um, if you have came into my office, you'd see I have sticky notes everywhere that are like those mental reminders for me, um, where I look at my wall when I sit at my table in front of me and I'm talking to somebody and I have things that remind me of you know being an active listener and always be modeling the right behaviors. The one that's really stuck with me lately is this concept of curiosity over judgment. I think a lot of us are quick to judge. Um, and so one of my, uh, my coaches really f has reinforced this concept of, you know, I'm a, I'm a D in the disc profile, right? You're, you're very action oriented. I think a lot of us are. And I, and I think the, the thing that she's coached me on is, you know, instead of jumping to judgment and trying to fix things like ask questions and be curious, I will tell you the amount of times I've saved myself from sticking my foot in my mouth because I've, I've seen that reminder on my desk and the sticky note. I, I couldn't count. Um, and so it's really cool when you take these, these concepts that, that are resonating with you and you, and you make them become a lie for you and they become part of who you are. Picking those little learnings and making them become how you operate every day is super, super powerful. So self-awareness to me is a huge deal. I'm blown away by, I love that you do that because uh, I realized, I guess in my, my early 20s, um, how powerful like words are like around you, like through sticky notes or a poster or something like we are so programmable and it's so important for us to curate our environment. I mean, Fabiana, one of our leadership coaches, she's got, she switches out her sticky notes all the time. And I always it. like to walk by her desk and look at them and cause they make me feel good, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. I think those very trainable machines we are. And I think it's, it's cool to, to see yourself do something and take a little tiny little tactical tool and put it in your tool belt and see that it, it actually adds value. It, it can become a, a, you know, a bit of an addiction on adding all these little things, these little tweaks into who you are and to see that the, com the combination of those things make you a much more effective leader. I love, I love curiosity over judgment. Uh, some deep thoughts lately I've been having, um, I've differentiated self-awareness and consciousness. Oh. So yeah, I found they're often used like interchangeably. People will say, oh, I'm self-aware. And I'm like, oh, I think that's just a way for them to say that they're conscious. Like, of course they're aware of themselves. Like I know it's like my two-year-old has, uh, you know, is conscious and it has awareness of their self. But what I found though, uh, is like, if you look at the people who are doing really well with the self-awareness, um, so I've, I've differentiated the term in saying that I consider self-aware people that are aware of how, how they work, but then will also take action to adjust their lives based on that. Cause you'll see people all the time that will have awareness of like certain attributes, but they won't actually adjust their environment or life or decisions uh, to give themselves more success. So they'll 
have awareness of what could make them more successful, but they won't take actions. Now I, I've limited my definition of self-awareness to people who are not only aware of what will improve them, but they're actually uh, implementing that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, obviously you could tell I'm, I'm drinking that Kool-Aid uh, big time. <laughs> uh, big believer in that piece of it. Uh, you know, creating that learning environment here where you demonstrate, you know, the desire to get better, to continually improve. One of our engineering core, core values is growth mindset. Like we really try and drive like self-awareness and a, an appetite to get better and grow. It's super important to who we are as an organization. Uh, and so the more we can model that as leaders, I think the more it becomes a real thing within the organization. So it starts with me. If I don't model that expectation, then I can't expect my leaders to do the same thing. And so I, I take that responsibility pretty seriously. So when the company is growing as fast as it is, what's, and you kind of just alluded to it a little bit, but, but what are the like one or two things that you really know, like if you get these right, the culture will scale and we'll do well as we add another 1400 people. Man, it's a great question. Uh, we have lots of different moving parts at our pace of growth. I mean, we talked about, you know, our, our products have been amazing. They're still amazing, but there's a desire and need to modernize those products. So it's easy to get excited about the technical transformation we get to go under. Um, I think a lot of folks in my seat would naturally gravitate towards that. To your point, where I really focused on is more of the people and process side of things, the cultural dynamic. Um, as an example, we've been working through in, uh, living more of the lean principles internally in terms of the software development lean principles. So tracking things like cycle times and throughput and work in progress and queue sizes and et cetera. Um, and what we found was all the training in the world um, doesn't get people to appreciate the value of those concepts. And so, yes, you could do the enablement, you do the training around those things, but unless we can get people to understand that by having reduced whip, by focusing on reducing cycle times, like you can actually see value in the outcomes in terms of time to value for our customers, the concepts don't land. And so a lot of my time is spent walking people through that process of learning on some of these core concepts where I think a lot of folks would get lean towards the technology side of things. If I don't enable the organization at a fundamental level during this transition, it's not going to matter. Like we can't scale. Like when I joined, I think engineering was, I want to say 150. You know, I think this year will be close to 400. So at that level of, and that's 14, 15 months at that level of growth, if you don't have that foundational piece in place, um, we're in trouble. So we focused a lot on that. The other thing that we've started focusing a lot right now on is organizational design. Um, so how do we organize and structure ourselves to be successful? I'm not sure if you've read Team Topologies. Have you read that book? No. Fascinating book. Um, it's basically how do you design teams and engineering teams to to be most successful? You know, folks in our in our industry have heard a lot about Conway's law. You know that your software reflects how you're organized. So they kind of lean into that principle in this book, and they talk about how how you can optimize your organizational structure to achieve your the outcomes you want to achieve. And it talks about this concept of I think they call it the inverse Conway's maneuver, some fancy name like that. But the intent is, you know, you design your platform architecture for, in our case, where you take all these different products and you do a lot of platform enablement around that, and then you look at that that structure, and then you design your teams within that structure to deliver that outcome. And so they've got different types of teams. They've got these things called stream aligned teams. They've got enabling teams, subsystem teams, platform teams. And it basically you create an organizational design based on your technical strategy, uh, which is a really different way of thinking about things. So we started slowly working through that process as we finalize our technical strategy. Okay, now that we know what we, where we want to go, how do we organize ourselves the right way to deliver those outcomes? Uh, where I think a lot of times folks will follow into, well, you've got, you know, you've got um, Spotify teams, you've got guilds, you've got chapters. Tribes, and, yeah. And they don't think about kind of this concept. And so it's been a really interesting thought experiment to go through this team topologies idea and I think they started in the DevOps space and they've kind of morphed into overall uh, engineering teams and maybe IT teams in general, but we've started really focusing on the organizational dynamic too. Yeah. And then, I mean, you definitely pick up on that and experience too, because you start out and you build some teams like, or you, you start a small team and you're building around a product, you're trying to solve a problem and then you get bigger and now you have resources that start needing to be shared. And so it's like this constantly, this moving 
object. So it's like not always just one and done. It's always going to be based around the problem you're trying to solve. So when I do like talks in public, I get that question a lot. They'll say, how should... Or yeah, or after the talk, people come up to me, hey, you know, we're growing at the company. How do I design my team? I've read the Spotify guilds or the the this, that, or whatever branded medium post that has a million yeah. views. That they've read about. <laughs> How do I do it? And I'm like, well, I can't, like, you, you don't, like, you start with your problem. Like, what are you trying to do? And you're, it's going to be reflected based on the type of service you're providing. Like, if you have, you know, client work, that's very, very different than if you're just, like, a Netflix and you don't have client work, <laughs> right? And so you just, you structure it around the, the problem and it seems pretty simple, but it takes a, it takes a lot of frustration to get there. It does. And I think it's been more acute for us because we're not a SaaS company. Like we ship product, right? We're one of probably the few companies left that do that. Um, and yes, we're going to be much more cloud first and it'll feel like we're cloud native, but we have to satisfy a bunch of different constituent groups. So we have to be really thoughtful in how we architect and design our software. We can't hide behind the SAS curtain uh, and have people, you know, putting their fingers in the technical dam uh, and, and behind the service. Uh, what we deliver to our customers is exposed, right? They have to stand behind it and support it and operate it. So we have to make sure that we're super thoughtful in our architecture, which means we've got to plan a long ways out. So if we plan a long ways out, we have to architect ourselves to be successful in delivering those outcomes. And we have to be much more thoughtful of it because of our distribution base and how we deploy our software. So it's a super fun challenge. I'll, my team's really excited about engaging in this. It's, it's massively thought provoking. Um, nobody, in my history, I've never approached it this way. And so for me, we've all done the Spotify and let's, let's take QEs that were in a separate department and embed them and DevOps and embed them and product management. Like that stuff's great, but this is a, it's kind of an elevated view of organizational design. So I'm pretty excited to go down that path. Um, hopefully in the next, you know, I don't know, six months or something, we've got a pretty good story to tell. So I want to dive a little bit deeper to something you were talking about a minute ago when we were, we were talking about like metrics and cycle times and throughputs and whips and stuff like that. You, you were, you know, lightly touching on that they're, they're metrics, but you have to get someone you have to walk them through that path of understanding like that they're valuable or feeling the gravity of them um at least that's where i th thought you were going with it i'm curious like how do you like say i'm a like a new executive there like how do you lead me to that conclusion to understand that these are the metrics that that matter well you know two different audiences i think the audience that that's been harder for us is the teams and the team leads right we Let's don't want to, that yeah we don't want to see we don't want the metrics to come across as being punitive right uh, we want the metrics to come across as being more enabling so if i give you a dashboard that has these lagging and leading indicators and we get you to do some experiments within that and see the effect um, so if I get you to like minimize whip on a you know, team size is four, let's say we, we do whip limits of two times team size. So you can have no more than eight things in progress at one time. Um, then let's take a look at the lagging indicators after a period of time and see, is it having effect on your cycle time? At the end of the day, our job as software engineers is to get ideas and features into the hands of our customers as fast as possible with the highest quality. And so I think everybody can connect with that mission okay, well, here's a tool that we think will help you do that. So just do an experiment. Like the only way you're going to buy into it is by under, like doing an experiment for a iteration, two iterations and seeing the impact. And then once you see the impact, okay, I get it. I get why we should be doing this. Um, and then you'll see people start tweaking the levers more and more. Uh, we had Don Reinerson, who's really the, the, the man behind the lean metric movement. Uh, he wrote Principles of Flow. We had him come in and do a bit of an assessment and a consultation for us. It was extremely eye-opening to my leaders to hear somebody who is basically the luminary in the industry in this area talk about what he sees within our company and talk about where he's seen all sorts of different companies adopt lean principles and seem to be successful. It, it had a great impact at the team level in terms of folks buying into it. The key to enabling it is to make sure there's no process friction there, meaning if your builds take forever, you're having merge conflicts, like that stuff's all artificial friction. We have some of that still. Maybe we've got kind of legacy build processes. So we've had to work through those things in, in concert, but at a principle level, it really makes a ton of sense. So I think we've made some progress there. The other audience is really the executive team. 
so I, I sell and I communicate to my CEO, who's my, my boss and our president on a weekly basis around our metrics. How are we doing? Are we becoming a more effective software engineering company? Can we deliver insights to our customers and innovation to our customers much more quickly? Um, well, they love to see that. They love to see that engineering is all in on, on innovation and all in on velocity of innovation and not just technology for technology's sake. So I think that's gone a long way with my leadership to get them to appreciate that we're trying to pull and push the levers to produce as many optimal outcomes for our customers as we can. So two different audiences, two different messages. I think both audiences buy into it or heck our board buys into it. They, they get it as well. So it's pretty cool when the board's talking about those metrics with me. Um, pretty powerful conversation. I love I love how everything's advanced to where it's no longer like shut up nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you talk about the tech, that's what you're going to get, right? If you talk yeah. about like I'm trying to get concept A to the product as fast as possible, I think everybody can get that. If you just talk about the different levers and metrics that give visibility to that, I think that's accessible. If you start talking about, hey, I want to do you know Kubernetes versus Docker Swarm, like you're going to lose 90% of your audience. And so we're trying to find those those business impacting metrics that are our, our business stakeholders will understand. And I think these are some metrics that they definitely get. Yeah. It's like talking about using a hammer or a wrench and there's like, when's the house going to be done? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we're, we're buying a house. <laughs> we want to move in. That's a great analogy for sure. <laughs> I really like how you broke that down too. So I guess I, I could sum it up by saying like you allow them to, to, to feel it by experimenting it and seeing it themselves. Yeah. That's how, that, that, that's how it becomes real to them. For sure. I, you know, it's never easy. I think there's, there's pockets of, you know, you know, as you typically find, you've got your, your, your adopters, the folks that are, you know, the, the, your first adopters, your initial adopter group, your early adopter group, then you've got your laggards. And I think how you bring the laggards along is by having those early adopters show success, right? They're like, Oh, okay, well I, I get it now. So Super important metrics as a company, like we focus on, you know, one of our key metrics for us is you know, a net revenue retention. So, you know, if you get into an account and get into a customer, how quickly are you growing your revenue base there? Um, that's a key metric for us. You know, customer NPS is a key metric for us. Employee NPS is a key metric to us. We try and tie, especially the net promoter score stuff and the net retention score stuff as hard as it is we try and tie it into these engineering metrics to say, hey, if we can impact these metrics, look what it does to our MPS, customer NPS, and look what that customer NPS does to our net revenue retention. Um, that, if you can create that correlation for our stake, business stakeholders, then they're like, go for it, man. Whatever you can do to optimize that, do it, because it's gonna have a big impact on our key business metrics, those being customer NPS and, and net revenue retention. No, I love it. I, I, I found that, like in this world of ridiculous amounts of data points, it's really about, and like all the things you can do. Cause we're, you know, we're way behind you guys. We're like a, a startup, right? We've got like eight people. And so there's so many books and so many things. It's just really been about reducing and finding like, what's the, the, the two or three things that we can control and work towards every day that actually make a meaningful uh, contribution to our, our revenue right? Or our, our product or customer happiness, we still do the NPS uh, uh, scores too. But yeah, it's for me, it's been a theme lately, just reducing the amount of things you look at, finding the, the least amount of metrics to track that create the most difference. And that's it's super hard. hard. That's super hard, <laughs> right? And I, and I will tell you, I'm the first person to emphasize too many things, right? I mean, I'm that, that D comes out a little bit too much, I'm sure. Uh, and I've been told, hey, you got to slow down, man. You're, you're introducing too much change. And so you have to pick the two or three things that are going to make the biggest impact. Um, and I think at times I've selected maybe the wrong thing and I've had to realize that and pivot to something that was more meaningful. It is not easy to pick the right metrics. You just have to be quick to adjust when you, when you have to figure out you picked the wrong one. Right? Ask for forgiveness. Hey, I think I got us focused on the wrong thing. I think we should be instead focused over here. Like having that... Um, that level of self-awareness and the conversation with your constituents is super important. Uh, but I know I've made tons of mistakes in terms of focusing on the wrong stuff too. You've been training your AI, your internal AI. Yeah, my, yeah there you go. There you go. Not mistakes. Yeah, you've been collecting data points. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of data points. That's for sure. I'm collecting a ton. I'll tell you that much, Joel. What are your thoughts on like the future of machine learning? Like what's going to like... What does it look like? I think part of it's just making it more accessible. Uh, I think 
right now, if you look at, you know, there's what, you know, 2 million status trained statisticians out there. So if you kind of call that your data science persona, you know, there's 2 million of those. And then as you probably have read in the press, or we're not growing that at an exponential rate. So how do you take what they do and make it more accessible to the masses? Alteric Start is a business solution, not as a technical solution or a data science oriented solution. So, you know, unlike some of the folks that sit within our industry who maybe approach it from an IT consumer's perspective or a data science consumer's perspective, we, we approach it from a what we call a citizen data science perspective. How do I give the, the Joel's uh, and the Joel's sister and others like really meaningful access to their data? And so I think what our charter really is to take that, that, that mission or that journey of data discovery, especially when it comes to assisted uh, modeling or machine learning or predictive analytics in general, help people learn how to think about solving those problems uh, so they can gain enough insights on their data to act on it. It's funny because a lot of folks will look at you know, what a data scientist does, a lot of what data scientists do is they don't, you know, create a, a predictive an, uh, analytics model, a machine learning model, and deploy that model into production, like a churn analysis model or what have you. You know, a lot of it is just generating insight, right? So you have some data, you think there's something there, you start structuring some machine learning. Oh, I, I see some insight. I'm going to go act on that insight. I'm not publishing the model. I'm learning. And I'm using machine learning to learn about the data. Maybe it's you know sentiment analysis, right? Where you learn your customers have a specific issue with, you know, let's say you're a restaurant, they've got a specific issue with your food quality, your service, and your sentiment analysis is is identifying that. Well, you're you're acting on that insight. You're not, okay, let me publish that model so I can throw new 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 data at it to see what it you know, predicts. You're you're acting on those insights. And I think for us it's it's reducing the time to insight for everybody. So I think that's where the magic sauce is. The Googles and the H2Os and the data robots and Microsofts, they're gonna to continue to do really, really great data science work. Um, but if I don't know I have a data science problem, I, I don't know that I should go use their technology. And I think the secret sauce for us is if I've got data and I don't know anything about data science, how do I get, uh, how do I understand that I've got, uh, I'm in a situation where I could, I could take advantage of that. and that the ability to turn that switch on of insight. Oh, this I probably could learn something from this data. Maybe I could do a regression analysis or a cluster analysis and I'll get some insight. That's the secret sauce, right? That's what opens up that data to everyone, especially the predictive analytics side of that data to everyone. And I think that really is the, the magic sauce for us and probably everybody else in the industry. When are you seeing companies like start or what, what patterns are you seeing within your customer? Like when are people realizing, oh, I'm at a point in my business where I don't know exactly what I need to do data science on, but everyone's kind of doing data science. I feel like I need a data scientist to do some stuff. Yep. Like how much of, of that stuff is on the data scientists you hire to come up with, or how much of it is the company coming up with and then trying to find a data scientist? How is that ha playing out in the market right now? I would tell you, I, in my opinion, it's pretty inconsistent. I mean, I think when we talk about the 10 to $15 trillion of value that's locked up, I think you're, you're hitting on the nail on the head and people have data, but they don't know how to get access to the data. So um, I think there's the obvious use cases, but people, you know, machine learning and predictive analytics is enough out there that folks will know that there's this thing called churn analysis. Um, there's this thing called clustering. Um, there's this thing, you know, there's those like those those typical data science concepts that still sit out there. It's enough to be curious about how to solve those problems. So I think educational, education-wise, we've come a long ways, and at least people having awareness of machine learning. Then the question becomes a tooling component of it. And I think most folks will generate insights off of the lookups in Excel or exports to Tableau, right? Tableau was kind of that first and you know, uh, um, you know, whether it's Tableau or Click or, or Power BI, that was really their first uh, foray into trying to understand their data outside of looking at Excel. Uh, so I think that we've gotten some acceleration there, but I, that last mile around data science, I think, is a challenge. And I think that's where the, the 10 to $15 trillion of opportunity sits. For us, we're approaching it from the citizen data science persona direction, not really the data science uh, persona perception. But I think if you look at companies that are more data science oriented, like the H2Os and the data robots. You know, they're coming towards us and we're trying to evolve the citizen data science to have more access to 
kind of advanced data science concepts. Uh, and we're kind of going the other direction. So I think both parties understand that the data needs to be more accessible in terms of insight generation to everybody. And how do we make that much easier for people? I got it. Okay, I'm starting. I'm getting some clarity now. So you guys are empowering the citizen data scientist because that's a really smart part of the market to empower because they're going to go build companies and widgets and things and they're going to be all built upon your stack. And they got great domain knowledge, right? They're the domain experts. A lot of times your data scientists aren't the domain experts. They're the statisticians and uh, they don't have the domain expertise. And so the, 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 the golden goose is how do I find a data scientist who's got a boatload of domain knowledge? Like that's hard. Um, that's a unicorn to some folks. And so how, how do you take the citizen data science and get them to look more like a unicorn in terms of being able to provide some of those insights? Just that's auto modeling. You'll hear auto modeling, you know, talked about a lot where, you know, you give it data and it just generates insights magically inside the box. How do you make that understandable, explainable, I think is a really important thing. Um, there's talk about neural networks and how awesome they are, but they're not easy to understand. So if, if you're a, you know, an insurance company, you're underwriting based on a neural network, you have to be able to explain how it's making decisions. Um, and you can't really with a neural network. And so I think, yeah, data science can be really empowering from an auto modeling perspective. But if, if you can't explain to your boss how you got to the answer, they're probably not going to trust your answer. And so you have to make the understandability, the explainability of the machine learning more obvious to the citizen data scientist who doesn't know how to speak about, you know, ROC curves and everything else. Like they're, they're speaking about, Hey, the data produces this model and I got to, I got to explain why I want to go this route on this business decision. And I, I don't know, how do you make that more, more accessible? Ooh, I like that. Cause I did see some companies coming out with, um, tools to help the the neural networks that we're learning explain yeah backwards about why they're learning it sounds like you guys are kind of in that area a little bit yeah i mean that's it's really weird it's machine learning for machine learning right it's uh it's adopting neural networks to explain neural networks is even what you're seeing as well so inception yes <laughs> <laughs> well i think what it tells you is uh, the uh, the industry's understanding that just creating data science outcomes that you can't understand isn't super valuable especially business outcomes yes driving your car like autonomous driving, sure. Like I don't need to explain why the neural network told me to go left when I was running at the end of the road. Like I, but if I'm creating a business decision, like you know, a, a churn analysis, or I'm making a decision on an individual in terms of underwriting, I, I have to explain that decision. And so it's great to see the industry's understanding that to make to make it more um, available and accessible, you have to make it more understandable. And so we're approaching it from what we call assistant modeling right now, which is how do I guide people through the process and educate them on the steps of machine learning or predictive analytics uh, so they can kind of learn how to fish. And then after a while, they can turn off the guided experience and just have their own experience or turn on the auto modeling experience. But we want to provide the education to the user so they can learn a little bit about data science in the process. Oh, I love it. And you guys are publicly traded, right? Oh yeah, AYX. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, eternally curious, right? So uh, I, I read that you did uh, like used to do some endurance sports, and oh, I've learned, yeah, I've learned uh, that your mind is not separate from your body, and that your your physical health and your fitness have a direct correlation and impact on your ability to to think clearly, to manage stress, things of that nature. Uh, so I want you, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Interesting. Yeah, I did endurance sports for, I lived in Southern California for, I don't know, five or so years. And I really got into Ironman and kind of the endurance sports side of it, mostly for the psychology of it. I thought it was, you know, trying to push your, your body through what you thought was, you know, the end of the rope, I think was a really interesting mental experiment for me. Um, and so when I was doing that, you know, in terms of my mental health, I felt really, really good about where I was at. I could really connect my my physical health to my mental strength. Uh, but what happened to me is I got hurt in the process of doing that. I moved to Colorado. Um, I ended up having to get uh, surgery on my hip. I had a torn labor in my left hip. And so I went from, and I still had exercise through the pain. Like it was part of who I was, uh, but I was struggling. And I had to basically not exercise once they fixed my hip for three months. And if you ask my wife what I was like during those three months, when I 
was disassociated physically from the mental side, uh, it was pretty impactful to my own productivity. Part of that's who I am, but I think part of that too, when you wake up in the morning and you, you get a workout in and you start your day out on that positive, like it sets the tone for the day. So for me, I'm not a nighttime exerciser at all. I am a exercise in the morning, start your day off on a real positive note, and then carry that momentum into your day. You feel better, uh, you feel healthier, you're more mentally acute during the day. So I think there's tons of correlation between exercise and just mental uh, awareness, kind of mental vigor. So I definitely connect those two things even still today. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big exercise in the morning person. I tried a couple of times to do it in the evening. Uh, before I decided to make it like a priority, I was like, oh, well, if I just don't get to it in the morning, I'll do it in the evening. But what was happening was I was doing these like six or seven o'clock workouts and it gives me so much energy oh. and I can't go to sleep. Like the workout yeah. gives you energy. The first time I ever heard this was it was so counterintuitive. Like, oh, if you're feeling a little tired, you know, and you're healthy, you're not sick or anything, but you're feeling a little tired, go for a quick run. Your body will start producing some more energy because you'll, it'll hit a demand. And I was like, whoa, you know? pretty pretty interesting how our how our bodies work for sure and if you look at like you know mark Wahlberg, i think it's crazy i think he wakes up like at two o'clock in the morning or something um you know uh the rock uh you know kevin hart him, like yeah. like those guys are all yeah. like wake up at three o'clock in the morning get workouts in then have my day jocko jocko a lot of yeah. like the high the, the high achievers like this is part of who they are like you don't see a lot of those guys as evening then that might be their second workout but a lot of those folks, they're, they're, they start their day by, you know, getting the exercise in to get the day off on the right note versus get out of bed, get on my phone, what emails that I get over the night, you know, pop on my computer, surf the web. Like that's bad momentum to start your day with. I read somewhere that the first 30 minutes of your day defines the tone of your day. And so I try and make those first 30 minutes of my day extremely effective and that builds a ton of momentum. So a lot of times I'll get up and I'll, um, I, I'm big into meditation because I'm big into self-awareness. Um, I do affirmation stuff. Like I try and like get myself kind of jazzed for the day. Then I work out and I take that into my workout. And then once I leave the workout, hey, I'm at, I'm full speed and I feel like I'm going to have an amazing day. But if you can really get your day started off strong, man, the momentum you carry into the day is it's amazing. Oh, I, I, I do all that stuff, but, and I also play with it, right? Like, so oh, I've gotten the, uh, I gotten the affirmation tracks you know and listen to those yeah, yeah. i've tried different types of things because i like to always keep it fresh right like i like to try like i'll go a month or two and do one one routine in the morning and i'll try another routine but they're all positive routines um where i'm at right now is i'm doing like a like a walking meditation so like walk run so i get up you know within five minutes i'm uh on the sidewalk you know of out, outside my house on my on my walk or run and i try to keep no thoughts in my head throughout the mile that I do. And every time something comes in, you know, I just let it go, let it go, let it go. And the, the, the concept I use is like your mom, I look at my brain like a, like a muscle. And when you're thinking you're flexing your muscle. And so if you're always flexing your muscle, it's going to be really weak and exhausted when you need it. So I try to use that beginning morning section to just read like consciously teach myself to relax it just because thoughts come in doesn't mean like I have to tense up and react and like think them I can just like let it go so I've been playing with that a lot lately and that's been good and to aid in that um, what was killing me was I get up and I need my phone right and and then there's stuff on my phone and <laughs> you can't not see it right yeah. but you have to see the alarm and everything and then you have to get your music going or whatever and so uh, recently I was thinking it's been two weeks now I turned off uh, all my notifications like, like all day for, or just in the morning you turn them back oh on. no no they're gone oh wow. like i have i have i have text and uh and calls but i keep my phone and do not disturb a lot but uh there there's no notifications anymore and it was a it was a bold move and i told my wife i was like yeah, i'm gonna awesome. do this and uh she's like okay and i posted that on linkedin and like three or four other really successful people i know were like yeah i've been doing that for two years i was like oh because you don't know what someone else's notification settings are like yeah, that's so, I got. I've thought about trying that. Um, I love that you take an hour and you get up and you go on a walk and you just you don't you you try and get into that mental state where you're just in the moment. That clarity. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. I, I try I, place. I go ahead. No, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead. No, I want to hear how you're doing it because I'm gonna adopt. So I, I, 
I've been trying to this new thing, is like placing my consciousness so you could like, you know, put it like in different parts of like forward or backwards or side or side. And so as I'm trying to keep my mind clear, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I, I let myself be weird as possible. And I was like, oh, what's it like if I put all my consciousness like in my stomach or like all my attention there, or if it's like behind my eyes or directly behind my eyes and like, I'll like scan around the map of my brain and play with different things because I, I believe that there's a huge lack of that. There's a lack of like self-exploration um, and there's a lack of discussion about it because I hear myself talking about it right now and I'm like, it sounds pretty weird, <laughs> but <laughs> right. But it, you know, the, the rewards in life goes to those who are, who are bold and willing to explore new areas. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I love how much you, 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 you play and you test things. I think that's, that's amazing. I mean, you're, you're experimenting on yourself, which is super cool. I, that's, I think if you can do that and enjoy that experience, gosh, that's, that's incredible. And I found people, you know, maybe you did this with your accent. So when I was um, like around 12, I got hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for a year, I had to go through the process of learning how to walk again and like my wow. muscles atrophied. And so I had to get them like fired back up in therapy, you know, for over a year. And it was because I had that experience, like if you have a muscle atrophy and you have to uh, get it to work again, get it to fire again um, through manual stimulation and mental stimulation, you have to actually recreate that, that mind muscle connection. And I hope no one ever has to go through that process. But if you do, you realize that your body has like features that you don't know unless if you have those opportunities to use them. And I'm sure you experienced some of that with after your surgery, right? Well, not to your level. I mean, I, I, I can, most folks don't think about, Hey, I'm, I'm teaching my, my toe to move again. Right. Like you, you've gone through like that mental, that neural path, connecting that neural path from your brain to your toe. I mean, that's, I, yeah, I mean, post-surgery, I went through my moments of rehab and, and got through that. But I think what you're talking about, what you experienced is so, I don't know, it's so foundational. It's, it's like root, like it's the most basic mental neural pathway between your brain and your, and your foot or your toe, like the smallest, the smallest muscle movement in your body. And you have to work to make that happen, but you can, you can, you can program that neural path. And so I think for, sounds like for somebody like you, you've taken that and you've taken it to the extreme. Like you're always trying to program different neural pathways in your head. And I think it's, maybe that was a blessing. I don't know. I hate to say that for something that's as tragic oh, yeah. as that, but it, you took a, you know, a tragic situation and you've really used it to your advantage. So that's the definition of growth mindset right there. And it comes and goes. It's like, uh, it's like the snow where you get the ski marks and then new snowfalls, like the things that you're doing aren't permanent. Like I can play with something and like it and then completely forget about it and like rediscover it later. But I'm curious to know about you. Um, so are you back like in the gym working out and lifting again? Like, are you all healed up after your surgery? Yeah. You know, I healed up. I, I think I, I, like a dummy continued to run endurance races, even when I had a torn labrum, I didn't know I had a torn labrum. I saw a ton of doctors and they couldn't figure it out. So I just continued to exercise on it. So unfortunately for me, I kind of created some, and maybe this is where I need to reset mentally. I kind of created some really bad um, muscle memory in my leg uh, where I still have a ton of leg pain from it. It's not with the injury. It's just more of, I've kind of programmed my leg to, my motor skills to function in a specific way and having to unprogram that is probably even more work. So it's a long process to get back from that. That being said, I've, I'm off to the next thing. So I, I used to ride bikes. I still can ride bikes. Obviously I did triathlon. So, you know, riding bikes is familiar to me. So I ride bikes. I've gotten into a little martial arts stuff because I like to accomplish things. I mean, the cool thing about endurance sports was it's about you and what you can get out of yourself. And so I like that process. And so I've tried, you know, doing more martial arts stuff to see if I can, you know, learn a different skill set. So the passion's still there. The endurance sports thing is kind of parked in the sideline until I can get maybe a little more physically better. But um, I'm finding different ways of ex exploring the, the physical side of, of, of my life. And I think um, it's a journey like anything else. And I'm getting a ton of joy out of learning a brand new skill set, just like I did when I started in triathlon, when I couldn't run three miles. Um, right. You got to start the journey from zero and it, the journey is the fun part. Oh, it always is. And then it's reminding yourself, like when you slide on that spectrum to uh, desire and you're not there yet. Yeah. And you have to like slide yourself back. Like I'm just, I'm always in this constant, like directing myself like, oh, I feel tension right now. Like I'm pretty, you know, I, I'm desiring a lot of these things and I don't have them. And it's like, what do I need to do? I've been here before. Oh, I have this skill. I'll just not desire them. 
I'll get right back to happiness and be completely content with my life today because we're just on a rock flying through space and it's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's great. Oh man, dude, Derek, this is awesome. Hey, when I'm out, are, what, what city are you in? Are you in Denver? Are you outside of Denver? We're a little north. We're between Denver and Boulder. We're in Broomfield. Uh, okay. Yeah. So our ex-founder was from, good, interesting story. He was from Boulder. You know, our company's based out of Irvine, California, so Southern California. Um, and so he basically refused to move. And so they started, the, really the engineering footprint uh, started in Boulder and we moved it to Broomfield. But yeah, our DNA, our technical DNA really is in Colorado, which is super cool. Most folks don't know that. Oh, nice. So I'll let you know when we're traveling out there next. Yeah. Maybe we go for a hike or something or have, have lunch, do something, yeah, but it'd be to. great to connect in person. Absolutely. Dude, we did it. We had a podcast. Well, if you want to go work for Derek, where do you go? What's the website? <laughs> well, obviously jobs at alterx.com, careers at alterx.com. Both of those will get you there. We're hiring a ton of people right now. As, as you know, we're growing at a monumental rate. Um, so if you're in the market and you're uh, you know, an overachiever and you want to go do amazing things for an amazing company, we're obviously a, a great spot to be. Um, so yeah, if you're into fast paced growth, uh, uh, reach out to us, uh, get in contact. Yeah. And a leader who cares. Alltrax.com. Absolutely. And then, uh, when I'm out there next, uh, I'll let you know, we can see if, see if our schedules match up. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's anybody else in Denver, you're interested in meeting, let me know. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to expand my personal brand. I'm fairly new to this market. Dude, you've got really good content though. Like A plus stuff, no bullshit. Like when I read your stuff, I was like, this guy, this mind needs amplification. Yeah. Well, likewise, I think the way you're attaching, attacking your space. I was listening to your podcast with, um, uh, what's it, Kevin, is Kevin Smith a CTO? At Kevin Scott. Yeah. Kevin Scott. And you had a blurb at the beginning around uh, how you kind of got there with leader bits. And it was really it really impacted me. I think the way you approach it is very akin to how I think about it. So I'd love to see your, your solution get much more market traction. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Oh, you yeah. have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks, man.